Good morning. And let's begin class with prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your love and truth and the liberties that you give us. We thank you for Jesus and all that he's done for us. We thank you for how you've guided us and our knowledge of you. And we pray that your spirit will join us today. Help us grow ever deeper in our understanding of your kingdom, our character to be like yours and our love for each other. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Okay, we're going to start on lesson number six in our quarterly Daniel. But before we get into the lesson... I got this email in the aftermath of the Power of Love uh, seminar, and it said the following. Good morning, Tim. I know you can be misrepresented, so I thought I'd ask you to confirm a statement you made as an answer to someone's question at the end of the meeting. Did you say that if people are operating on lower levels than level five, that they cannot be saved? The lives of some Bible characters and personal experience with other Christians seems to refute that statement. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior and has uh, given... Uh, let's see, Savior, and have given your heart to him and live in other-centered uh, life, then do you have to climb uh, through the level of levels of moral development before you uh, can be saved? Uh, I can see that operating at level one may prevent you from recognizing your need for God because you are self-focused, but I cannot see the other levels necessarily preventing uh, you from truly giving your heart to the Lord. Many I know love the Lord with all their heart and understand that the Holy Spirit is bringing them into all truth and helping them develop their character, yet believe that the unconverted will be punished by God. Uh, It seems to me that the levels above level four bring freedom, that the other levels have not yet experienced. So I thought this is a really good question to clarify. So here's, here's what I, I respond. I said, um, my point is that salvation by definition is a change of heart from enmity to God to trust in God. If the heart doesn't change from enmity to God to trust in God, regardless of your explanations of the Bible, you're not in a saved relationship. Anybody disagree with that? I mean, that's the root. Now, the Bible uses metaphors of being reborn, being recreated in the inner man, having the heart circumcised, having the law written on the heart. They're all metaphors, though, of a heart that is against God, doesn't trust him, is self-reference, to a heart that is renewed in trust and thus has new motives that are godly through the indwelling Holy Spirit. That is this the, the, the moment of salvation when we give our heart to the Lord. Yes or no? Okay? So my understanding that moment happens at level five. Because level four is a heart that's still all self-referenced. Level one, it's about uh, getting rewards and avoiding punishments. Level two, it's about getting good deals for me. Level three, it's about getting me to be acknowledged, accepted, and and, uh, valued by other people. Level four, it's about not getting in legal trouble, making sure my legal record's taken care of so I can't be punished. So all those other levels are self-referenced. Level five is when the heart goes, it's not about me. It's about God and others. That's what it's about. Greater love is no man than to give his life for a friend. That's where the heart changes. Now, so does that mean a person actually has to understand what I just said and explain it on a Bible quiz? No, it's about the attitude of the heart. So people can have a heart, like this described in the question, where they really have trusted the Lord and they have had a change of heart. They do love God. They do love other people. But they've only been taught doctrinally level four explanations. And so when they explain a Bible quiz, they might explain an answer in a legal terminology or level four explanations that doesn't mean that's where their heart is. And so they're, they're converted. They're level, they're level five at least, okay? So, so that's my, my understanding of what that means. Any, any confusion now? What about children? Too young. Uh, even, even with level five being little children? So, so your question about children is not really answered in Scripture. There is no answer in Scripture about what happens to the that has no ability to, to make a, a mature decision, has no knowledge of God, no knowledge of the world around them. That is a, the Bible, and any inspired writings I've read are silent on the question. Some, some say that, well, if the parents are righteous and saved, then their children will be brought to them. I don't dispute that. That's perfectly okay to believe. Some say that that's not the case. I don't dispute that because I have no um, evidence uh, in Scripture or any inspired source that would answer that question. But... I'm answering the question of the age of accountability, whatever that chronologic age is. And there isn't a chronologic age because some people actually gain maturity and capacity to give their heart to the Lord at an earlier age. I know children who have given their heart to the Lord at five, six years of age. Haven't you? Now, they, they, they might explain things in a very legal and childish way, but they would be considered those babes in Christ. They're in Christ. They trust and love the Lord. 
And they're very infantile in their understanding of how God's kingdom works. There are many adults in that way as well. They're level five in heart, but they're infantile in their cognitive explanations of things. Does that make sense? So it is not about cognitive explanation. It's about heart attitude. I think the best or better example than children would be Down syndrome people. Down syndrome people that I know have hearts that love God and love other people. They love people. They really do. As I said to, I was up in uh, the group in uh, um, Ohio where they have this ministry um, for the um, developmentally handicapped, like the Downs, and I met a bunch of them there. And I said to the pastor, I said, you know, if the Sanhedrin would have been made up of people with Down syndrome, when they bought Christ before them, instead of crucifying, they would have given him a group hug. Isn't that right? It's absolutely true. So I see the Down syndrome folks as a great example of people living at level five, but they're not going to pass a Bible quiz. Am I right or wrong about that? They're not going to answer the questions about, well, difference between justification, sanctification, expiation, propitiation, and all this stuff. They're not going to get it. Okay? But their hearts love people. That's level five. Okay. I like your explanation about the the thief on the cross. He accepted Christ on the cross, but he hadn't changed anything before that. Right. His heart went from self to surrender. That was the transition at that point. But he has a lot of growing up to do now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Over here. Yes. What about the age of Jesus when he was like 12? He understood and knew his purpose. So did Jesus need to be converted? No. There's a difference. Jesus was a unique being who didn't have to convert from a selfish heart to an unselfish heart and put his trust. He was, he grew up with a heart that was right with God, but was able to be tempted like us, but he was never, uh, had a heart that, um, imbibed or participated or was infected with self-centeredness. Yeah. So that's a good question. All right. First paragraph says in Daniel five, the word of God gives us powerful example of human hubris that ends in a stunning and dramatic way. Though one could say that it takes Nebuchadnezzar a long time to learn his lesson. At least he learned it. His grandson, Belshazzar, does not. In using the temple vessels in the palace orgy, Belshazzar desecrates the temple. Excuse me, desecrates them. Such an act of desecration is tantamount not only to a challenge of God, but an attack on God himself. Thus Belshazzar fills the cup of his iniquity, acting in a similar way to the little horn. What do you think about that sentence? Such an act of desecration is tantamount not only to a challenge of God, but an attack on God himself. What does tantamount mean? It means that it, it, it means that that's what is actually happening. This is this is what it, it's not just this. It's really that. Okay, it's really an attack on God. That's what it really is. Is what they're saying. Yes. He's ignoring God. It's a lesson suggesting that if we were to attack God somehow, then the righteous response from God would be to use force to attack back and kill them. Because Belshazzar is going to be killed here shortly for this. He gets the warning on the wall, and, you're, and you've been found in the, you know, weighed in the scales and found wanting, and you're going to die tonight. Is it suggesting that when you attack God, the righteous response is for God to smack you down? Are there God constructs that God is insecure? What happens if you were to say something derogatory about the prophet Muhammad in certain countries? What would happen? Or about Islam or about Allah? If you said something derogatory, what what might the response be? Why would that be? Why would they respond in such a way? Yeah, I think it's evidence of a insecurity about the God, yes. Did uh, Belshazzar desecrate the vessels, or did he desecrate himself? These are inanimate objects. Uh, can they be? It's just like your argument about the Sabbath. Uh, can the Sabbath be made more holy or any less holy? No, it can't. Only we can be made more or less holy. Oh, I like where you're going with that too. I'm going to. We're going to unpack that that idea in just a second. Let's stick with this idea of the methods, though. If God were to use methods to smack down people who literally attacked Him. What kind of law would that be operating under? Under that's how imperialism works. If you you know uh, offend the king, the royal, the sovereign, you have you know done something to attack the throne, then you deserve. This is treason against the government of God. You deserve to be executed for your treason. This is how imperial systems work. Imposed law systems work. But do we actually have evidence given by God, not declaration, evidence of what God actually does do? When we attack him, 
Yes, we do. Consider the cross. Who was on the cross? God. God was on the cross in human form. But that was God, wasn't it? Okay? And what? And, and Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. The Bible says that God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. So, what will God the Father do if you were to beat on him, spit on him, slap him, curse him, put a crown of thorns on him, nail him to a cross? What would he do? Love you. Forgive you. Not slap you down. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What were they actually doing? They thought they were killing and destroying Jesus. Were they killing and destroying Jesus? Jesus was accomplishing a mission to destroy sin. It says in Timothy that he destroyed death and brought life and immortality. Like Jesus was on a mission to destroy sin, to destroy death, to bring life back to humanity. That's his mission. They thought they were killing him, but who were they actually killing? Not only injuring themselves by rejecting Christ, the source of life, it wasn't just a, a transient injury. What is it? They're cutting themselves off from the source of life. So they're actually, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. They think they're killing me. What they're actually doing is sealing their own eternal death by rejecting me. You see, I don't have to take action against them. Design law, if you cut off yourself from the source of life, you die. If you cut your finger off from your body, what happens to your finger? When we are cut off from God, we die. That's a very simple reality. And so that's why God has shown us his response if we were to attack him. Design law. Question hand back here. Somewhere. Yes. Even in Psalms 103, it says he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquity. There you go. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. Understand, though, that Satan, I believe, thought this would work. Satan is self-deluded at this point. He actually believes that imperialism, force, coercion, actually, because he's seen it work in so many lives on planet Earth, he's seen it work. Yeah, I think he actually believes that if, if, that the rule over method, the power over method, the force to comply method is the way to go, and, and that he thinks the reasonable response when you are threatened with death, the reasonable response is, to strike back and protect yourself. That what, that's the survival mode. I think he really expected Jesus to use his power to strike back. I think he really did. And I think he was stunned, as well as the rest of the universe. You can read commentary from Ellen White where she talks about uh, the heavenly uh, beings were watching what was unfolding in the Old Testament, the rebellion of Israel, the wickedness, the desecration, the, the, all this stuff. And, and she said all heaven was geared up that if the Father would say, you know, strike them down, they would have done, if God would have struck them down for their wickedness, they would have said, amen, that this needs to be punished. This is how the heavenly beings, in other words, they're buying into Satan's view, the heavenly unfallen beings. And they were stunned when instead God sent his son. It was like not computing. How can you do that? And, there, and, and, and God through Christ is not only saving humanity, but as it says in Colossians, all things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. He's revealing the truth about what really wins, showing that this imperial way, striking back, does not actually win hearts. It's not the way God rules. Very powerful. Yes, Wendell. The story that we're covering today is a, is a continuation of that very same thing. Do we see God actively doing force to do anything. No, he says, this decision has been made. You've made your own decision. You're reaping what you have sown. It's not God doing something to Belshazzar. He's revealing what's happening, but he's not doing it to him. Yes, yeah, so let's talk about this. So what is transpiring with Belshazzar? Is God actually attacking First of all, is Belshazzar, is Belshazzar actually attacking God personally? What was Belshazzar doing, actually? He was doing something. He wasn't making a physical attack on God, but he was doing something. By bringing the temple items into use, he was doing something to God. He was trying to make a statement. 
Of what kind? Of arrogance, really. Yes, okay. So what was he doing to God then? He was defaming him, yeah. belittling him, trying to suggest this is a powerless God and we're more powerful than that God, um, d- disparaging God. He can't do anything to God, but he can, as, as Satan does, do something to God's name or reputation, misrepresent it. And, and that type of activity has its power where? Does it actually harm God's person? No. No. Where does where does harm happen when we misrepresent, defame, disparage God? Where does it happen? Well, in the person doing it for sure. Does it stay in the person only? No. To any other person who believes it. So it damages minds. It damages hearts. And so when we see God responding, is God responding, you've offended me. How dare you? I'm the sovereign. I will now use power to punish you for this. Is this what we see happening? Or is God saying, I love people. I don't want people to have their minds corrupted and, and ruined. I, I want people to come to a knowledge of me. Is that what he's doing? And what, God, what are God's actions teaching here? And what did he do? Hand appears on the wall. Hand appears on the wall. Starts writing. Just get your mind around that. <clears throat> To me, it's teaching that God intervenes to protect people from those who would try to corrupt people. He intervenes to try and protect people from those who would try and corrupt people. This is revealed on another level with with the sanctuary symbols. Go ahead. And wasn't he also trying to save Belshazzar, give him one last opportunity to repent? Well, that's a good insight. And and you, you must be looking ahead in my notes. I think you're exactly right. Yes, well said. Well said. Um... But on another level, let's, let's, let's just unpack this a little more. Remember, everything associated with the sanctuary is symbolic. Nothing's literal. Lamb represents Christ. White robes represent the righteousness. The daily priests represent um, the priesthood of believers and so forth. It's all symbolic of something else. What were the vessels that Belshazzar brought to you symbolic of? Yes. Human hearts. Paul was called a chosen vessel. What went, what went in the in the temple services? What was put in the vessels? Blood and wine, because they had the wine on the um, on the on the table where the showbread was. So blood and wine were put in the vessels. What is the blood symbolic of? The life of Christ. And what's the wine symbolic of? The life of Christ, which is not all of blood. They're both symbolic of the same thing. Okay. And Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh or drink my blood. So, so again, the vessel is the believer who is to internalize Christ into their heart and be renewed. That's a symbolism here. He's taking these vessels now and he's using these vessels for pagan, um, you know, destructive, vile, vain things. What would that symbolically represent happening? It'd be saying he's corrupting the hearts of people. That's what it's saying, symbolic. Uh, Perverting their character, infecting them with Satan's views of God, using them to lie about God. Thus God, again, acts. Same thing, both in literal and the symbolic application of what was going on, acts to say, I will intervene to protect the hearts of people. Sunday's lesson asked us to compare how Belshazzar's action in using the golden and silver vessels of the temple for debauchery uh, is like the harlot of Revelation using the golden cup to intoxicate the nations. The last paragraph states, Like Belshazzar, the woman in end-time Babylon holds a golden cup and offers polluted drink to the nations. In other words, um, in, in other words, my beams of false doctrines and distorted uh, worship system um, by beams of, of false doctrine, by typo here, by means of false doctrines and distorted worship systems, modern Babylon lures the world into evil. What does the wine in the cup of the woman in Revelation represent? Symbolic also. What is wine? If you drink a lot of wine, what does literal wine, if you drink a lot of it, do to you? 
confusion. Okay, it makes you drunk and inebriates you. So functionally, what happens to your function? You get functionally impaired. What happens to your thinking, your reasoning, your judgment, your problem solving? It gets impaired. Okay, so wine is a representation of something that if you partake of it, it will confuse you, it will impair your judgment, um, it will impair godly function. That's what will happen. Well, what would do that? False doctrines, lies. Lies believe, break the circle of love and trust, incite fear and selfishness. And the core lie of this woman of Babylon, remember, a, a, pure, a pure woman represents what? The church. So an impure woman represents false churches, false religions. That's right. So here we have an impure woman intoxicating the world with the wine, her doctrines, her ideas, her beliefs, and the whole world is intoxicated with this. Confused, drunk, not rational, irrational, because they're drunk. What do you think the core lie is that comes from the church that the whole world imbibes. God's law functions like human laws. There it is. That God's law is like human law. This is the core lie that comes from the church. That God's law functions like human law, and God, in order to be righteous, must use his power to punish lawbreakers. Thus, suffering and death come from God. He's the source, and thus God must be appeased. Islam rose in protestation of many of the abuses of Catholicism, but they did not reject this view of law. They hold the same imperial view of God's law and teach that God, in order to be just, must punish sinners. And they have a very authoritarian system across the, the, the landscape of the different sects of Islam. And they all believe that one day God comes back to judge the wicked and to punish them. Same root concept. Judaism has been infected with this imperialistic law concept for millennia. Look at how they treated Christ when he was trying to teach them design law. They kept being mad at him for breaking their rules and wanting to stone and punish. Imperialism. What about those who don't believe in God at all? Are they drunk on the wine of Babylon? They don't believe in God. How can they be drunk on the wine of the church? She said they believe in force and coercion. Does that put them in the same boat? What else? They're rejecting a God that doesn't exist. There you go. This is it. Why don't they believe in God? Because they drank the wine, and the wine of Babylon is God's an imperial dictator. He makes up rules. He's a righteous judge. He follows you around. He keeps a list of all the bad stuff you do, and here's the list uh, over here, and, 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 the, and the Methodists have a list, and the, and the Adventists have a list, and the Baptists have a list, and the Muslims have a list, and, and those lists are all different. But they all claim that if you don't keep the list or get payment or legal accounting for the things on the list, that this God is one day going to punish you in hell for a period of time or for all eternity. And they look at that, and then they look at the world around them, and they see design law. They see how reality actually works. They see the laws of gravity, the laws of physics, they, the, the, the laws of health. They, they see a design, and they may not call it design, but they see constants upon which reality work, and, and they look at this arbitrary, rule-giving, punishing God, and they reject it. They see how love actually works, how they love their own families, and how even when their children disobey as kids, and even if the children run away from home, these people would not hunt their children down and torture and kill them. Yet they, they, they're told that, and righteous God will do that, and it's not rational. And so they reject God because they've drank the wine that says this is what God is like. The whole world is still reacting to this wine. Yes? I think some people uh, who do read the Bible, I know some people personally who either read or listen to it without putting a whole lot of thought to it, just read it as is and read through the Old Testament and get overall a, a very bad opinion of God because it sounds like he's saying I'm going to come with my fiery sword and kill you. <laughs> that's right and that's what our one of the things we tried to disabuse people of at the Power of Love conference to show that that's not actually what's being said. But why did they read it that way Linda? Because that's what their mindset is. They Before they read it. They, in other words people go to the scripture with the assumed belief God's law works like human law. 
When you break a human law, it's not just to let people get off. There's no justice. There's no accountability. We must hold people accountable. We must punish them. That's human law. That's how it works. It makes so much sense. It's reasonable. And then they apply that construct to God and then read the Old Testament, and that's how they see it. Ken? I've believed for many years that part of the reason that so many people drink so much alcohol is that they want to offer an excuse for behavior that they other, they know otherwise would be unacceptable. Okay, we're going to put that aside because I'm not going to get into addictions. A whole other neurobiological consequence going on there. Go ahead. The whole misconstrued concept, though, because the lies what's been perpetuated, and in growing up, they probably encountered that same message. Part of it is also that that is how the perspective was raised from the beginning and their and their foundation. And so I think there's a, a the reading of it without intentional slant of how to, to man's laws work, but also based on understanding of what they've been taught previous. And so, so yes, I, I don't think that people consciously go, I know I'm going to uh, misread the Bible when I accept the guy idea. They don't even think about it. It's just assumed. It's an assumption. Uh, it's an, uh, the fallacy of the assumed premise. And if you assume something to be true that's not true, it warps um, your conclusions as you evaluate data that you're, you're, you're reading. Um, so other ways the world is intoxicated with this wine, this, this imperial law lie. How about governments who claim God is on their side and em- embrace the imposed law model and then use force and coercion to force their way upon others to pass the laws of their religious system that they think everyone should comply with because that's the righteous way to do things. That's the wine of Babylon. And that ultimately is what Revelation warns about, that there will be a imperial system that eventually arises that is emerging of, of this beastly, the beastly power emerging of, of religious values and, and state power to coerce people. Even our, our sports is affected with it. You know, the, each team will pray, you know, let's, let us win. And they're, and they're battling each other for conquest. And yet, well, we have a lot in sports, we have a lot of battle that invokes God's name. Monday's lesson asks us to read Daniel 5, 5 through 8. So suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. I can see that. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So it was, it was suggested a moment ago, and I'm going to agree with that, but the question is, what was the purpose of the handwriting on the wall? Was it to punish Belshazzar? In other words, to cause the king emotional torment before he is killed by the invading army because he needs to suffer a certain amount of mental anguish before he dies. That's a common thought in many Christian circles, that, that there needs to be a certain amount of torment before they die or else punishment hasn't been meted out properly. And some people are looking forward to sitting in committees in heaven to determine how long each person has to suffer before they're ultimately killed. Do you understand how gross and corrupt that is? Yeah. Was it an act of grace, mercy, one last intervention by God to give the wicked king an opportunity to repent? See that? Is that how? I I didn't always read it that way, I'll be honest. I read it the other way growing up. I read it that he was a bad king and God wrote this to to, uh, make him fear what was about to come and he was about to get killed and punished for his wickedness. That's how I read it as a kid growing up. Do you think, imagine now, put yourself there. There's a party going on. Drunken, rabble-rousing, loud noise, music, okay? Do you think this would have caused the entire party to come to a sudden halt? Merriment would have been replaced with somberness and seriousness. Would this be an opportunity for everyone, not just Belshazzar, but everyone in attendance to rethink their situation and repent? Why did the king call the astrologers and the enchanters? Do you think the king was looking for a, the truth and an honest explanation 
or something that would soothe his anxiety and take away his fears. If any of our modern presidents were having a state dinner and a hand appeared on the wall and began writing a message, who do you think our presidents would call? He he said Ben Carson. Uh, That didn't occur to me, honestly. know who they'd call i think i think if the reagans would have been and they would have called the astrologers because nancy was big into astrology but other than that i have no idea who they would call but it's an interesting question to think about isn't it what would you do in that situation today well, what was interesting to me it said it was written in their own language yes it was so why couldn't they read it <laughs> how would you know what it means it just said counted counted weighed and measured Counted, counted, weighed, measured. That's what it said. Why do you think the diviners... But here's the bigger question for me. Why do you think the diviners could not interpret it, the writing? I, I find that quite strange, honestly. Most of these types of people are very good at making things up to sound true. Aren't they? Even though they're not. They have the opportunity to be the third ruler in the kingdom. I've seen similar things in many settings. Someone, I've been in places where someone speaks in tongue, gibberish, hysteria. But another person stands up and gives some bland, generic interpretation that could be a Christian fortune cookie. There's nothing specific, nothing precise, a generic message, God loves everyone. That's a message that God loves everyone here tonight. <laughs> yes, this, is, this is what happened. I mean, Really? Never anything that can be disproved, never anything that's actually testable or meaningful, yet most people believe the interpretation. I'm, I'm curious why these guys didn't do something like that. Fortune tellers are very good at conning people, aren't they? With their so-called interpretations. Why do you think that these fortune tellers could not give some made-up explanation? Is it possible that the Holy Spirit actually put an impression upon them that they had such uncertainty that they couldn't even come up with something? They were so impressed not to say something. I think, I think maybe that was going on. Tuesday's lesson has to read Daniel 5, 9 through 12. It says, so the king, Belshazzar, became even more terrified. His face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. Oh, king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was, in the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. Do you think the king did not know about Daniel? Is it possible that the king growing up in Babylon never heard the stories of the three worthies in the fiery furnace? Didn't know his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, spent seven years in sanity, had a dream of a, of a statue that was interpreted by Daniel, had a dream of a tree that was interpreted by Daniel, went out for seven years, and he certainly didn't know that his grandfather appointed this person, Daniel, as the chief of all the, the wise men of the land. He, he had no knowledge of that. Does that sound credible to anybody? Or is it more like that Belshazzar did know, but also knew Daniel served the God of heaven and not the gods of Babylon? That Belshazzar knew Daniel was a Hebrew and the items just desecrated from the Jewish temple. And that with all the violations of God's law, as in all violations of God's law on all people, there is an internal conviction, an awareness. We know, we know, when you've done, you know. An uneasiness, an anxiety, a guilt, a shame. And truth magnifies this self-condemnation. And is it possible Belshazzar on some level knew he was wrong, knew what he was doing was wrong, and knew Daniel would expose his wrong? and didn't want to hear from Daniel. 
Is it possible? So he called the other soothsayers because he wanted to be soothed. Do we see God here again acting in grace to give the king an opportunity to repent? Okay, yes. Your point, I think, just dovetails nicely with another reason why the, the wise men were unable or unwilling to reveal the writing on the wall. They may have, they're typically syncophant yes men that, that surround the king. And even if they did know the meaning, they may not have wanted to tell about a fear being headed, for being beheaded or killed. Daniel, good, meanwhile, good point. Had, no, had no, he didn't grasp for power. So the lesson points out God's wrath is coming. And it asks us to read uh, Romans 1, 16 to 32. Romans 1, 16 to 32. So let's, let's, let's break this down. Romans 1, 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentiles. Pause right there. What kind of power is the power of God? Notice the gospel is the power of God. What kind of power is that? It's life-changing. Sure, that's the impact of it, but what kind of power? That's another. It is a healing power. Okay, power of truth. And love and freedom. These are the powers to be used. The good news about God, his methods of truth, love and freedom. It is the power to demolish strongholds of lies that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. See, truth demolishes lies. Love breaks through selfishness. Okay, And so as we see the power of the good news is revealed in Christ, it demolishes our fear of God, wins us back to trust in God, and we experience the love for God, from God, and for God, and for others. It changes us. That's the power, the power of truth and love. Keep on with the Romans. For, the gospel, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as as is written, the just or excuse me, the righteous shall live by faith. The other versions say the just shall live by faith. What does it mean? The righteous or just shall live by faith. Does does it mean those who have had the right legal accounting in heaven uh, are just because they have faith that their account's been legally adjusted? That's what it means. I have faith that my sins have been paid for, the blood of Jesus has been applied to my record in heaven, and therefore I'm just, and I'm living by faith in the legal payment to my account, that makes me just. That's not what it means, guys. The person who's been reborn has new heart and right spirit, and that person then has the fruits of the spirit, and the last fruit of the spirit is what? Self-control. The person who is right or just with God is the person who in governance of self chooses to do what is right or just and then lives by faith, meaning lives by trusting God with how it turns out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the plain of Dura, they have a decision to make. Bow, don't bow. That actually is not God's choice. Is that God's choice? That's their choice. What is the just or righteous choice. So the just do what's right in governance of self and live by faith, trusting the outcome to God. And you see this in the story beautifully as they're caught before Nebuchadnezzar, and they say, O king, we know that our God can deliver us from the fire, but even if he doesn't, We won't bow. They didn't know what God would do. They know what he could do. But they said, God, we trust you with our lives. We will do what we know is right in governance of self. And our lives are in your hands. We have faith in you. We trust you. That's what it means. Sadly, I'm not sure I would have been as mature as them. I hope I would have been. I hope the Spirit would have been on me to give me the strength to do that. Because I'm a calculator sometimes. I calculate and plot and strategize and... Not that that's a bad thing, but I might have looked at you if you were standing next to me, and I would have said, hey, uh, Tina, we can't bow. We can't bow to a false light. We can't do it. Tina going, yeah, that's right. That's right. We can't do it. The fiery furnaces, they're not really on the agenda here. I know. I know. When the music plays, I'll tie my shoe. Exactly. Because 
Man looks on the outward appearance and they're looking to see and they might think I'm bound, but the Lord looks on the heart. He knows I'm not bound to that. I'm just tying my shoe. Okay. This is how we, we often do it, isn't it? I've heard people actually say that, just what you said. Yes, this is how we do it. And, and, and I believe God is gracious and had the faith been of such a nature that a person that had done that, he would not have been mad at them. He would have loved them and was glad you hadn't given their heart. But he said, I hope you grow up and trust me enough to let me, let me use your faith in me to reach King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, because they had faith and trusted God with the outcome, God was able to reach Nebuchadnezzar. And not only that, there was a there was an, a, a proclamation that went out to the kingdom. The, the story was told. Many more people reached it. We don't even know their names. Keep going. Now we go to the next part. This is the wrath part. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made to the men without excuse. Pause. Why are men, and that means women too, it's a generic term, human beings, why are human beings without excuse in the knowledge of God? What's the reason given here? We're surrounded by it. Because God's divine nature... And eternal power, his invisible qualities, have been clearly understood, being seen from what has been made. He's talking about nature, science, the laws upon which reality operate. See, what kind of law is being described in this passage? Design law. Design law. See, can people know from nature the tax code? Can you know that from nature? Can you know from nature the speed limit on a certain highway or, or road? No. You notice you cannot know from nature impose laws. This is another powerful passage. God's laws are design laws, and we have no excuse for not understanding and knowing them. They're all around us. They're operational all the time. Being understood from what has been made, but people are free to reject it. You can reject the knowledge of God's laws. You can transgress them. You can violate them. But you can't avoid the results of doing so. See, people are free to reject the truth that smoking damages your lungs and believe that smoking makes them breathe better. They can do that and then smoke. But they can't avoid the consequence to their lungs when they smoke. Our beliefs do not change the laws of nature. Our beliefs do change us, though. That person who believes the lie is changed and damaged by that because their behaviors go against the laws of health and they injure themselves. And the sad reality, this is what's described in the following passage in the rest of the section we're going to read here in Romans, what's described is that very thing. And the sad reality is the world is intoxicated with the wine of Babylon, falsely believes that the problem in breaking God's laws, like human law, is just a legal accounting mechanism. And if we can get the legal account taken care of, and then we can accept the blood of Jesus as our Savior, and all our sins, past, present, and future, put on the cross and paid for it, the cross, and I accepted that, therefore I'm saved, and once I'm saved, I can't be lost, then it doesn't matter how much transgression I do anymore, it's all legally taken care of, or if I believe another system that any time I transgress God's law, all I have to do is go to a confessional, talk to a priest who will absolve me of all that, and legally take care of it, it doesn't matter how I live my life, I can run a mafia, I can do drug deals, I can do all this stuff because it doesn't really have any impact, it's just a legal process. When you're intoxicated on the imperial law lie... You get this false security where you do things that are still in violation of God's design law, corrupting your character, hardening your heart, while you live in a false security that's all taken care of. Drunk on the wine of Babylon. Notice what Paul says happens to those that persist in rejecting the knowledge of God and transgressing his design laws. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is the consequence. Reject truth. What happens to the mind? It's not an infliction. It's the only, uh, 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 it's the only unavoidable outcome that your mind becomes more confused and more darkened with misunderstanding. 
Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Now here, here's God's action. He takes an action. Here's his wrath. Therefore, God gave them over. Some say gave them up. Gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity and the degrading of their bodies with one another. Notice again why. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. I'd rather have the lie. I don't want the truth. Well, you're free to do that, but you can't avoid the damaging consequences. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, here God acts again. God gave them over. Now, what law is being, is being described that God is operating on when he gives them over? That's the law of liberty. God actually gives us real freedom. He sets us free. God himself. Because love only exists in the atmosphere of freedom. So God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural one. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with the other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind. Again, notice what happens. If you reject truth, and it doesn't matter on any subject, Paul brings this up in Thessalonians, those who do not love the truth are given over a strong delusion to believe a lie. On any subject. We can go out here on a clear day, and we can see the blue sky, and we can take an instrument, and we can measure the wavelength of light that is being refracted, and I can give you the exact measurement in nanometers of the wavelength of light that we're seeing. I can present that to you. You are still free to reject it. I don't believe that. I think that's orange. The point is, once you reject the truth, it really doesn't matter what else you pick to replace it with. Anything else is a lie. Okay? And once they reject the truth about God, their minds become darkened because everything else is false. So we give them over to pray mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways to do evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they now, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Look at the world today, both in Christian circles and in the liberal, non-God-believing uh, non circles. You see both happening. What type of law is being described? This is design law. Reaping and sowing. By beholding, we become changed. Law of worship, law of exertion. Multiple laws are, are happening here. On this very passage, uh, the book Hard Sayings of the Bible, um, published by University Press, um, this is what the theologians who are writing a commentary on this passage wrote. This page 542 and some into 543. In some sense, God's wrath is built into the very structure of, create, of created reality. In rejecting God's structure and establishing our own, in violating God's intention for the creation and substituting our own intentions, we cause our own disintegration. The human condition, which Paul describes in Romans 1, 18-32, is not something caused by God. The phrase revealed from heaven, where heaven is a typical Jewish substitute for the word God, does not depict some kind of divine intervention, but rather the inevitability of human debasement, which results when God's will, built into the created order, is violated. Since the created order has its origin in God, Paul can say that the wrath of God is now constantly being revealed from heaven. It is revealed in the fact that the rejection of God's truth, that is, the truth about God's nature and will, leads to futile thinking, idolatry, perversion of God's intended sexuality, and, and relate, relational moral brokenness. The expression, God gave them over, or handed them over, which appears three times in the passage, supports the idea that the sinful perversion of human existence the resulting from human decisions is to be understood ultimately as God's punishment, which we, in freedom, bring upon ourselves. In light of these reflections, the common notion that God punishes or blesses in direct proportion to our sinful or good deeds cannot be maintained. God loves us with an everlasting love, but the rejection of that love separates us from its life-giving power. The result is disintegration and death. Well said. 
This is exactly design law and how it works. And this is the message that is to go to the world. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Linda. Yeah, I think God uh, uses parenthood as a kind of a help us to understand this. We can teach our kids, love our kids, take care of our kids when they're helpless. As they get older, they have more and more freedom until they're an adult. No matter how much you plead or try to give them the truth of what's really happening with their decisions and the outcomes, they will decide to do whatever it is they're going to do. And you end up having to let them go in some instances. They're so far convinced otherwise that there's nothing you can do to get through the thought processes they have. And it's a horrible thing to have to let go of a child. Well said, well said. Uh, looking into the next day's lesson, um, it's about the uh, actual handwriting on the wall and Daniel's interpretation. We don't have time to read it in the uh, in the uh, chapter there, so we're just going to get to it. The uh, the final there was uh, you know many many tackle parson, um, which um, which was interpreted as you have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. When you hear that, do we believe that Belshazzar was overthrown because? He used the temple articles. Had he not used those temple articles that night, the hand wouldn't have been on the wall. He would not have been overthrown. No, the army was already there. Yeah, exactly. The army was already at the gate. That army didn't just blink into existence when he brought the temple articles in. That had to be months and years in preparation and uh, training and supply and march and so forth. No, this was happening. So again, when you understand this army is about to come in, and what's the army going to do when it breaks in to Belshazzar and his family? Kill them. Kill them. Does God know this? Mm-hmm. Does God love wicked old Belshazzar like he loved wicked old Nebuchadnezzar? Yes. And so again, we see God knows a few hours from now, Belshazzar's toast. And God puts the handwriting on the wall to give Belshazzar one last opportunity to repent. If there was ever a sign of a loving God, that is. I've never heard it put that way before. But that is a beautiful description of God's love, that he would give him one last chance because God knew the army was ready to overtake him. And even though if Belshazzar does give his life to the Lord, he has no opportunity to live a life, thief on the cross type example. Isn't that something? Okay. But this is the God that we serve. He gives us every opportunity. The Bible calls it God's strange act. What, what, calls what God's strange act? Let people go. Letting happen and let people go. Okay. Strange act to him. He hates to have to let go of his children. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. I just want to clarify what we were referring to. Uh, what do we think about the idea that judgment happened that night? Because the lesson points out he was judged and punished. That's the lesson points out. Well, for those that were at their event last weekend, do we remember there are four judgments, not one judgment? There are four judgments. Which judgment was happening here? So the first judgment is our judgment of God. Paul says in Romans 2, 4, God, may you be proved right when you are judged. Or at Mount Carmel, the situation at Mount Carmel, Elijah turned to the people and said, make a judgment. If God is like Baal, worship him. If God is Yahweh, worship him. The first judgment, because God has been lied about, because we believe lies about God, because God loves us and wants to win us back to trust in him, he reveals truth to us and asks us to choose. Make a judgment. Do, do you see who I really am as Jesus revealed? Or do you hold to the lies that Satan's told about me? Judge me. Love me. Trust me. That's the first judgment. Second judgment is God's judgment, or you might use prefer the word diagnosis of our actual condition, and God's judgment of what is most therapeutic to give us the greatest opportunity to partake of his healing remedy. And this is what you find happening through the entire Bible. God is judging the circumstances, the sickness, the depth of the depravity, the, the, the depth of the necrosis of hearts and the circumstances. And he's making therapeutic judgments and interventions of what actions are going to be best to keep open avenue for Messiah and to bring people the opportunity for healing of their hearts. In this particular case, he judged Belshazzar. He doesn't know me. He's still self-centered. He's still hard-hearted. He judged that this is the final thing I can do to give him pause. And, and it worked in a certain way. The the orgy stopped. There was pursuit of, of truth. What does it mean? There was recognition of what was said, and that gave opportunity for him to make a choice, didn't it? So God's judgment 
of our condition. I also see this as the investigative judgment, where in heaven, Christ is evaluating or judging those who have given their heart to him, open their heart, give them access, and what aspects of our hearts he needs to fix. What, what residual issues he needs to remove and how does he need to heal the inner person? He's investigating and cleansing all those who trust him. Third judgment, angels, we, we judge angels during the thousand years. No, don't you know that you will judge angels? You know, Paul talks about this. We will sit in judgment and we will be evaluating and judging or, or drawing conclusions about why the angels did what they did. And then the great white throne judgment at the end of the thousand years. I wish we had time to go into Friday's lesson because it was uh, very interesting. Uh, in fact, I think we have to. We have to go into Friday's lesson. It's about the history of the nations. And it says, the history of the nation speaks to us today. To every nation and to every individual, God has assigned a place in his great plan. Today, men and nations are being tested by the plummet in the hand of him who makes no mistake. All are by their own choice deciding their destiny, and God is overruling all for the accomplishment of his purposes. Would that include President Trump? Meaning that that to every individual, God has assigned a place in his great plan. Does that include President Trump? I wrote a blog this week that has really, really gotten some people distraught with the idea that an ungodly person like King Nebuchadnezzar, but read in Jeremiah, Jeremiah says that I will call my servant Nebuchadnezzar. An ungodly, unrighteous, arrogant, prideful person. At the time he was called, he hadn't gone out in the seven years yet. He hadn't been converted yet. He was so proud he thought all this was on him. Uh, this, he was so proud he made a statue of him that people would worship. This was an arrogant, prideful, pagan, unconverted, yet still called God's servant. There are godly people. Daniel, godly person. There are ungodly people that can be called to positions to achieve actions in God's greater landscape of reality for what he's trying to achieve. The suggestion to some that that could be happening here, an ungodly, unchristlike person could be used by God to achieve a goal was very offensive to some. If you were offended, I, I, there was no intention to offend. There was intention to stimulate and motivate introspection, thinking, and hopefully um, growing in our love for each other. Can we love each other if we see things differently? Or if we see things differently, do we have to hate each other? See, I'm all about Romans 14.5. Let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. Present truth and love, lead people free. It's okay. I actually not upset if people see it differently than me. But it, it saddens me. It really saddened me to see some of the responses that were, were posted on our Facebook page under this blog where some of the I guess, very, um, you know, hurtful things that were being said. Saddened me. This point, though, every nation, every individual is assigned a place in God's great plan, yet we are by our own choice deciding our destiny, yet God is overruling for his accomplishments. How do you balance that? How do you balance that we have been chosen for God's great plan, but it's by our own choices we're doing it, but God is overruling for his greater plan? How, How do you balance that? Are we really free or is he overruling? I think Jonah is the perfect example. Was Jonah the only person in Israel willing to work with God? No. No. So think that through. There were other people, but God specifically chose Jonah when others could have been called and been willing. He chose Jonah. Is God able to read the hearts and minds of people? Did he look into the heart of Jonah and said, ah, that man, how he decides, how he thinks, his biases, his prejudice, his love for me, all the things that make Jonah Jonah is the man I need right now. He calls Jonah. Did God know that Jonah hated the Ninevites? Yes, he called him anyway. Is Jonah free to follow God or reject the call and run? There's Jonah exercising his freedom by his own freedom. He rejects the call and runs. When God runs, does God overrule by sending a storm? Did Jonah understand where the storm came from and why it was there? Who chose, whose choice for Jonah to be thrown into the water? Jonah's choice. Now, do you think this choice of Jonah was because he loved the men on the, on the ship so much? Do you think he was uh, you know, looking for a submarine to pick him up? 
No, seriously, from Jonah's perspective, what was Jonah really choosing to do? He would rather do what? Then he would rather die than go to Nineveh and preach to these people. That's how much he hated them. Okay? Now, you understand, God understands this. Now, does God love the Ninevites? Yes. Does he love Jonah? Yes. Does Jonah have a hate problem in his heart? Yes. So, he chooses Jonah, sends the thing. Jonah throws himself. Now, Jonah's choice. I'm, I'm going I'm to just die in the ocean rather than preach to those people. I hate him so much. Does God overrule? Yes. yes. He sends a fish, overrules. You're not going to die here, Jonah. Now, do you think Jonah now had opportunity for reflection? <laughs> No, seriously. Don't you think he had opportunity for it? And he did. You read about it. He had serious opportunity for reflection. Okay? And, 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 and it's because God hates Jonah or because God is intervening, calling Jonah for a specific mission. We're going to get to it in a minute. But at the same time, working to free Jonah of the hatred he has and fill his heart with love. It's brilliant and beautiful as you see how God works. Now, he was going to preach... To the Ninevites. Now, the god of the Ninevites was Dagon, the fish god. Now, think that through. I'm going to send a prophet to speak to these people worse than fish. Hmm, maybe it would work better if he's delivered by a fish. (laughs) Seriously. And a fish delivers him. And, of course, they repent. Jonah's still mad. And then you have the whole actions with the vine. Who sent the, God intervenes with the vine. Who caused the, the worm to come and eat the vine? And all of these things, God is overruling, but Jonah is deciding. And ultimately, I think Jonah comes to new epiphanies, new insights, and heart change. And God saves the Ninevites. So do we see the balance here between free choice, God's callings, and his overrulings that never really violate our free choice? Yes. And you've got to say that it lets you know that the Ninevites were extremely violent people. They had a reputation, a horrible, horrible reputation, did terrible things to people. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just Jonah saying, oh, I hate them. I mean, he was probably partly hate, partly fear, because they were well feared, because they, they created fear in everybody that they uh, came in contact with, because they were extremely violent. The lesson also talks about God sets up kings and takes down kings. Do we believe that's true? He orchestrates. There are other places in the Bible where God actually says some of the kings of Israel, I didn't choose these kings. Remember that? These these kings I didn't choose. But yet it says he sets up kings and takes down, down kings. Well, maybe that means he does some, not all. He does some, not all. Or, or... Just like the circumstances here, they weren't who he wanted, but knowing the hearts of men, he permitted this to happen, and he overrules the consequences and intervenes to keep his plan moving forward. And in the end of time, where we are today, we see the message, the Son of Righteousness rising with healing in his wings. Does attention need to be drawn so people can practice discernment? One of the, uh, uh, and I will give it to you. Think of the possibilities why an unchristlike person like Trump could be put in a position of leadership like he is and it somehow be working towards the larger plan in God's kingdom, like Nebuchadnezzar. How could that be true? I can think of multiple reasons, honestly. I can see multiple reasons right now how that's true. From the the idea of the Reformation, and the Reformation is that hey, Christianity is apostate, and we need to come back to the true three angels' message, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that the men is. And this highlights what imperial Christianity looks like. And imperial Christianity is not biblical Christianity. Maybe it gives people the opportunity to make that distinction. Other opportunity are he, he resists socialism. And, and, the, and the green movement that is trying, and for those that don't know, read my blog on the, uh, on the climate, uh, the climate um, change blog, and you'll see that I document that the Pope has called for a meeting this May in the Vatican with all world leaders and, and major um, you know, corporate leaders that are, that are world changer people to, establish the, to start the process of establishing a new world government that governs 
carbon output and climate that all the nation states will eventually have to answer to. Many Christians and many Adventists are tunnel-visioned, looking to the right. It's going to be evangelicals merging with the, with the United States government to force evangelical laws, and they're tunnel-visioned. I think we are wise to keep our eye open to watch for that, and we should resist any type of practice because that violates our liberties, and we don't want to violate liberties. We want, we want freedom of conscience, freedom of, of, uh, of speech, and so forth. But they're blind many times to the left, and the movements coming from the left that are seeking to do the same thing. And I'm simply saying, open your eyes and watch for movements that are designed to take away liberty from either side. God's government is truth, love, liberty. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us the truth. Pure truth in the life of Jesus. Truth in your written word. Truth in science and nature of how your laws work. That you've given us the spirit of truth to win us back to trust. And as we open our hearts, you pour out your spirit and fill us with your love. And we pray that you will fill us with your love so that we can be effective wielders of the sword of truth so that other hearts and minds can be set free and come into your kingdom of love. And we ask that you will uh, continue to uh, make us effective in, in championing your kingdom at this time in our history so that the world can be lighted and you can come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.